Greetings and welcome to Visibility with your host, Dr. Donna Maria Culbreth. You may call us to share your thoughts, pose a question, or to give a general comment by dialing area code 323-642-1562. And now, Dr. Culbreth. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Visibility for our mini-series, which is pretty awesome that we have going on. It's titled Our Voices, Our Stories, and today is the fifth and final episode in the mini-series, which has been awesome. We've had some great discussions and conversations over the past couple of days, and throughout the entire month of March, we held a series, Our Voices, Our Stories. And basically, this series celebrates not only Women's History Month, but the publication of the National Girls and Women of Color Council anthology, Our Voices, Our Stories, an anthology of writings advancing, celebrating, embracing, and empowering girls and women of color. So in tonight's episode, which is, uh, you know, our, our rock, we're going to be talking about health care disparities for women of color, especially in the millennium. And the touch show is titled, What's the Health? Women of Color and Health Care Disparities in the Millennium. And let me give you a little insight into what we're going to be talking about and go over the description of the show. Then I will read the bios of our guests. And we will move forward and have a wonderful show. So basically, this is what we're going to talk about. We're going to focus on changing the narrative about health care for women of color in the millennium. And the topics that we're going to focus in on, and this is going to include some data, guys. We'll be able to throw some numbers at you and cite some sources and references so that you understand the issues that really are affecting women of color, specifically black women in the millennium, because they are serious. Um, they need to be spoken about on every platform we can possibly imagine. So let me give you some topics. We're going to look into quality health care, preventative care, understanding and questioning, I know your diagnosis, asking questions. And that is so important. You have to be able to ask questions. And I'll share, guys, my experiences with a doctor who didn't want me to ask questions. And he was basically, we can say, fired as my doctor. We're going to talk about second opinions, knowledge, research, on trusting doctors, you know, on being heard loud and clear. When you go to your doctor, you make yourself heard. Your voice has to be heard loud and clear. You know, the importance of using your voice when it comes to your health care. We're going to talk about childbirth birth and mortality rates, surgical procedures. Then we're going to look at racism and colorism and how they play a part in the disparate treatment that women of color um, receive in the healthcare industry. Additional topics include strategies to empower women of color to take control of their health and make informed decisions. This particular episode falls under the last and final category of empowering women of color. So it's it's going to be, you know, pretty interesting. My guest tonight, and we were supposed to have three 
She has a master's of social work degree from the University of Georgia and a Ph.D. in social work from Clark Atlanta University. She holds social work licenses in Georgia and Indiana and is experienced working in both micro and macro level capacities. Dr. Huggins, along with Dr. Phoenicia Wells, they co-authored on what the health, major health disparities among women of color, and they wrote a wonderful poem they're going to read for us later. Let me introduce Dr. Um, Phoenicia Wells and read her bio. Dr. Wells is an assistant professor and member of health services for the College of Nursing and Health Professions at the University of Southern Indiana in Evans, Indiana, and she's taught for nine years. She earned her doctorate of health education from A.T. Still University School of Health Sciences in Kirksville, Missouri. And in addition, she's a certified health education specialist. Good evening, Drs. Huggins and Wells, and welcome to Visibility. How are you tonight? Good evening. We're fine. Thank you for having us. Hello. Yes, yes thank you for being guests. Um, I think this is awesome. Before we even get into uh, going to the show, let me first ask the both of you, um, what moved you to write What the Health first? Um, I'm Dr. Huggins. I can go first. I uh, have a really good colleague, Dr. Nubian Sun, and um, she kind of, <clears throat> excuse me, mentioned the call for proposal. And once she uh, gave me the information, and then I, I went online, and then I just kind of looked at all of the other things that you had tie into it, just everything that you were about and represented. And it was just very intriguing. And then I called Dr. Wells, and I mean, it was. That's kind of how the project started. <laughs> and it was so, um, it was amazing just to, like, go to the website and just see the different topics. And um, I just had presented a topic um, titled, What's the Help to the Students of Color at our university? We had something called the Black and Brown Summit, and it's especially for our students of color. So I did that during fall 2018. During my presentation, I discussed um, with the females at the college, the, uh, the females of color that I had in my session, I discussed with them the importance um, of prenatal care, uh, STDs, and the prevalence of cervical cancer among women of color. And within that particular session, I discovered that a lot of the females were just totally clueless in regards to the need to see a gynecologist annually and just the risk that they were up against as women of color. So I knew that this was something that, we both needed to advocate uh, for and educate on uh, in regards to uh, the health disparities that women of color face. I think that, that is so true and so important. And I want to tell you, I love Dr. Nubian's son. Uh, she is amazing. She's a jewel. She's amazing. Written <laughs> <laughs> um, for the Journal of Colorism Studies and as well for the anthology. And I love her style. Um, her yes. focus, you know, she, and I we say, well, I want to be just like you. She's oh, just, yes. Um, she, yes, I agree. She's authentic. She really is, and she's not a, she's like unapologetically Nubian son, and that's what I love about her. Yeah, me too. That's what I love about her. I'm like, you know what, she's ideal. And I remember when she wrote a um, a piece, it was so moving. And I wrote back to her right away and said, I can relate to this because it was, you know, talking about being a mom. And I just lost my mother recently. And it was just, it was as if 
knew I needed to read that piece. And oh, it was wow. soothing. It was soothing. It just it made the difference difference for me. And I'm like, wow, she's just like too good to be true. So when you talk to her again, you know that I send her much love. Definitely. I sure will. <laughs> Definitely. Awesome. So as we talked about um, piece, tell me what made you want to actually submit it into the anthology? What caught your attention about that? To submit the poem unintended, self-harm, and the article, the essay. Okay. Uh, well, after Dr. Wells uh, presented at the, was it Black and Brown? Yes. The Black and Brown um, Summit and just the reviews and the um, what is the hype that she received from the students is like, wait, this is something that people need to hear. And it's like, we we thought it was, it needed to be heard, but just the the response from the students and these are college college age um, individuals because like so it's like, wait, maybe this is a platform that we're unaware of and we're not even we're unaware of how it's needed. So once the um, after she submitted. I mean, after she presented and then she read the poem and she said it was like really good feedback. And right after that, that's when Dr. Nubian's son came along and it was like, whoa, 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 wait, like what the hell? It's like, this is like, I mean, it was like almost, uh, it fit directly. And so that's yeah. kind of how it came about. Good. It was, I loved it. Perfect. So let's do this. Which one of you would like to read your poem, Unintended Self-Harm? I'm hugging. I'll read it. Okay, whenever you're ready. Okay, so it's called Unintended Self-Harm. What the hell is going on in our society today? Many ignore signs of distress or a doctor's visit to prevent a deduction in our weekly pay. We have normalized our aches and pain instead of seeking medical consult, but self-neglect equates to personal insult. Could it be that we have been taught to hope and pray for the best, or is it that we are afraid of the costly diagnostic test? What the hell is going on in our society today? Are we willing to ignore the stats and believe that we are okay? Or is it necessary for us to spread the facts on health disparities to the youth of today? We must raise health awareness and do our best to inform, or we will lose a generation to unintended self-harm. I love it. Beautiful. Yes. Thank you. So beautiful. And I think, and I, you're right, I think it is so important that we definitely make sure you know that we do focus in on our health care, especially for women of color in light of Serena Williams' issues that she went through, the mortality rates, um, especially especially black women with childbirth issues and other areas. And I can even, you know, tell you from experience with the family, myself and others, on the quality and the type of health care mm-hmm. um, that I've received and I've seen others receive, and I find it disturbing. And I find it more disturbing when you look at the quality of health care women of color receive in inner cities. It's mm-hmm. un- and I can tell you firsthand because I'm in her inner city, and I can share with you what I've seen and my experiences and how I have a zero tolerance for that. And right. I- where, where most people, I've noticed most women were, will kind of like go away and, not speak on it, but I will call doctors and the office staff on it, and I'm not concerned with what they think or how they feel because it's my life and it's my body. 
Right. So, no, I, I totally agree. I told you know, Dr. Carbreth, when as I was uh, preparing today for um, the talk, I uh, you know just kind of reading the story about Serena Williams and at. 15, my story was parallel minus the childbirth. I um, was having, like, I mean, I don't even know how to, excruciating pain in my in my, my right leg. And I guess to give a, a visual, it was as if a watermelon trying to squeeze through a lemon. I mean, it was oh excruciating pain overnight. And um, I would wake up during the night and... I I lost mobility. I would ha- fall back on the bed, and you know I'm a 15 year old kid, so I, I I had no clue. I couldn't connect the pain to anything. So what happened was I um my uh, menstrual cycle was just completely I mean like unbearable. It, but it, it was normal. But I was like, okay, something has to happen. And so my mom took me to the doctor, and it happened to be an African American doctor, and um. She was asking me all of these questions, and she was like, you know what, maybe we should try birth control pills. So I was like, oh, okay, so how does that work? You know, she was giving me um, the rundown on how to use it and all of this good stuff. So she said, well, before um, I prescribe these medica- the medication to you, I need to know is there anything, what, anything abnormal, any pain, tell me anything that's going in your body. And that question alone saved my life. Um, well, I, I told her, and I explained it to the best of my ability, well, because of her, I guess just she was totally in tune to me and, you know, being a young kid, she was like, oh, uh, that does not sound well, and before I give you this medication, you're going to have to um, have a scan at the hospital. Needless to say, I went to the hospital immediately, and it was a DVT. So I was 15 years old. Um, with the blood clot in my leg, and ha- I couldn't, I couldn't link the severity of it. But had she, you know, just normalized, oh, you're okay, that's fine. I, I definitely wouldn't be able to participate in the broadcast today. So that she wow. helped me to find my trust in a doctor, and she was a woman of color. So I, I appreciate. It. Unfortunately, she has passed away, but I'll, like, I really. I I mean I'm very grateful for her. Well, that is a, that is amazing. Thank God. See, she was in tune and she was listening and she heard your voice. Yes. Yes. Your voice. I mean, and it was immediate. It was immediate. Isn't that amazing? And see, sometimes, and I can tell you, sometimes I remember when I was teaching at a in a inner city college in Baltimore. I remember one of my students coming in, and well, there were two of them specifically, and they had like health issues, and the doctors were not listening; they weren't hearing them. Mm-hmm. And and I, you know, I in the classes, you know, the class ended, and I hopefully they were okay. I know one communicated with me later, but see, you were lucky and blessed in your situation with a doctor. She was in tune. She was listening. She heard everything that you said. With with these other young ladies, the doctors were just like blowing it off, right. and. My question is both for you. Do you think that there is, you know, and this is just for our listeners, we all know the answer, but this is for our listeners. Do you think that there is such an issue where doctors do downplay issues that women of color discuss or bring to them when they come into the doctor's office? Do you think they sometimes they just ignore it or they don't really uh, hear us. They don't hear our voices. Is that an issue? I I do. 
Yes, I agree. Because I've wondered about that, I, and I can tell you from my experiences, I had a terrible fall in 2016, injured my back and couldn't even walk. It was horrible. Um, spinal damage and damage to my spine and to the nerves, which is, to this day, is like the worst pain on this. It's like having a toothache, like having seven to ten toothaches at one time in your back. Mm. Um, the numbness, go, you know, the, my legs going numb, buckling, not being able to stand too long, not being able to sit. If you lay down, I mean, it's just like a living hell. And I remember when I first went to one doctor, well, put it this way, bulk of the doctors that I visited, the very first thing they would come and use oxycodone, oxycodone. I'm like, no, I don't want that crap. I'm not taking it. Right. And, you know, other than surgery, which they say they know it's not going to help me, what I found disturbing was that they were ready to give me, and I can't forget any of the medications right now, that anyway, they want to give you mind-altering drugs. Where there's mm-hmm. one pill, I forgot, I forgot the name of it. There were like three sets of them. First, they wanted to give me pills for people who were depressed, and I'm like, are you out of your minds? I just told you, <laughs> yes, I'm in a hell of a lot of pain, and I can't function the way I need to and want to, but there's nothing wrong with my mind. So the response was, oh, because sometimes people with a lot of pain get severe depression. I'm like, well, look, I'm not depressed. There are no signs of depression here, but I need you to listen to what I'm saying to you. Um, So I literally had to, I mean, if I'm going to tell you I have a spinal injury and you're looking at the MRI and you see that it's really severe, but you're not asking me to take off my clothes and put on a gown so you can look at it or touch it or examine me. I have a number one issue. Number two, when you want to sit there and say to me, well, here's a drug, and I'm like, well, you know, because I've researched everything. I said, well, the drug is for someone who's depressed. I'm not depressed. Oh, but it helps with pain, nerve pain, damage. And my sister and my husband can verify this, too. Each time I took the pills, you know, different different time frames, it was prescribed separately. They would alter your mind it's, it's so that you were the only thing I was aware of. And these weren't pain pills. They claimed they were, just, they were going to help with the pain. I had Tramadol in the end for the pain. But their position was that... It'll help you deal with the pain, but all it did was turn me into like a zombie. The only mm-hmm. thing I knew, I knew that I was awake. I knew that I was breathing. I knew that I was in a room. However, if my husband or my sister said, hey, Donna, um, are you hungry? Do you want me to get you something to eat? My response rate was like, it took so long for me to respond to process what they said and respond. And then I was just sitting there, and all I, all I can tell you is that I was aware that I was breathing and I was there in the room. But my ability to think, reason, um, to just function as a normal person was so severely impaired on the medication, I refused to ever take it again in my life. Because mm-hmm. I've heard of people with severe back injuries and pain and I, when I, ladies, when I tell you I've been to hell and back with this, I have. And for doctors, and these are different doctors, mind you, for doctors to say to you, take this pill when they know it's for depression. And if I take a pill and it alters who I am, and here's the most amazing thing, I still felt the damn pain through with the pills. So what mm-hmm. good was it? Uh, right, then I started, right. you know, I was having conversations with other women of color who also had back or spine. 
and they all experienced the same thing. They became like a zombie. And it started to alter. The one young lady told me it altered her mind to such a degree that she was even aware sometimes that she just knew she was breathing. Same thing like I would say. Because you couldn't respond and you were just, you were like out of it. It wasn't a high or anything. But you just, your mind could not function. So I'm saying to myself, it's, it's something that you're doing to alter your mindset so that you end up becoming so, I, I would say you're like a, a, a mind, you're, to me you're like brain dead in a sense because you can't think a reason. What was the point, what is the point of them prescribing medications of that nature to so many women of color for back injuries? Hmm, right, right. You know, I find it disturbing that they even did that. But I'm glad that I had enough sense because I research and I read everything. And just off of the way I felt from taking the pills, I believe that if I continue to take them to this day, I don't believe that I would be who I am right now. Mm. I, and it happens a I, lot. Yeah. And I remember my mom used to always tell us to always read um, the medications. I had an aunt, my mother's sister, you know, had health issues. And she was on so many pills, but I saw my aunt, who was this vibrant, um, mouthy woman who was a lot of fun, who could make you laugh, and, you know, she was like the life of the party. I watched her, once they put on these on the medication, just, just turn into like a, a, um, a zombie. She was sitting in the room. You would talk to her. Response rate was 20 seconds later. And over the years, I saw her deteriorate down, where her mind just seemed to just... And this is now remember, she was a younger woman when she started taking the medication. But over the years and you know, just months and then years, you could see how it just changed her until she wasn't even the same woman that I knew. Wow. And and that bothered me and I've always said this. Yes, I live in a lot of pain every day. I lay down, I'm in severe pain. If I sit up, I stand any but I learn to live with it and I try and push through it. Because yeah. the last thing I want to become is addicted to a drug. Yeah. Um, well, allow a medication to take away Dr. Donna Maria Culbert and make her just some lady sitting in a chair in a corner in a room staring out of a window. So, right. I mean, yeah, so, I mean, it's a lot, but I'm, I'm one, I think my question I want to ask the two of you is that, and I'm not saying this is intentional, but don't you think it's kind of suspect that, these types of medications are prescribed to women of color and that so many of us had similar stories and similar medications being prescribed for us when, in fact, none of us were depressed. But they were provide, yeah. prescribed these medications, say, claiming, and they do say they help with pain. Some of them do say that on their labels. But don't you think that was odd? I definitely agree. I've read a couple of studies that, states that blacks are less likely to be treated for pain, especially in the ER. So I think uh, what I'm just suggesting is maybe they are giving us something to cope with the pain. And I, it, it can date back to James Marion Sims, you know, his study that he, where he performed the treatments on uh, the women and, you know, didn't use anesthesia, even though anesthesia was available at a, at a particular time once he was doing some of those procedures, he did things like C-sections, you know, on women. So just think about the pain that those women had to endure. And some of these studies say that they think and they refer to black uh, black women and women of color as 
being desensitized as if we don't have feelings or if we can uh, feel or, you know, our tolerance level is higher than, you know, other women uh, or whatever. So I think all of that kind of, you know, dates back and it helps to um, put us where we are. It's not a great place, but I think all of that dates back to slavery, to be honest, that, you know, they just feel like we can endure more. Now, we are strong and resilient women, but we do feel pain. I've had a baby, you know, I, I know that, you know, there is pain. You know, there we, we do know what pain is, and we do need a medication. And as you said, we don't need medication for our mind. We need medication for the pain. So exactly. I feel like um, they're dating back to, you know, slavery and during that time. And, yeah, we endure because we had no choice. But now that these pain medications are available, we want, you know, what's available just as any other race. Uh, and, we, and we pay taxes. We have insurance. And studies even show that even – among people and women of color, even though we share the same coverage now, most you know, especially working women of color, the same coverage and the same uh, physicians, that we still don't get the quality of care that other women receive. So there's definitely a disconnect uh, with that. Yeah, I agree, and I will tell you when I read your article, What the Hell, and I was reading about um, Dr. Sims, I was like, are you kidding me? That was just so yes. inhumane. And you're right, I agree with you 100%. I think that all that stems from back to doing that era in slavery and the belief that yeah. we can tolerate pain. And that was an eye-opener for me. Um, and you guys really educated on, with me on that particular issue because I was not aware of it prior to reading your article. So thank you for that point there. That was wonderful. Perfect. So let me do this for our listeners before we move any forward. When we start talking about health care disparities, I just wanted to find for you what we are referencing. So when we talk about health care disparities, you know, the Institute of Medicine and, and a report that they wrote back in, I think, 2012 or 2002, this is how they described it. It's defined, health care disparities are defined as the differences in the quality of care received by minorities and non-minorities who have equal access to care, that is, when these groups have similar health insurance, as, doc, as Dr. Huggins and Wells just noted, have similar health insurance and the same access to a doctor, and when there are no differences between these groups and their preferences and needs for treatment. Now, this definition acknowledges that some differences in the quality of health care, care um, between minorities and whites are explainable. For example, research shows that some minority patients are more likely than whites and this and so just listen clearly, listeners, before you get annoyed with me. Then whites to reject their doctor's advice for treatment, although this difference in treatment preferences is generally very, very small. So here's the thing, guys. Let me give you some statistics to share with you some data. When and Dr. Huggins and Dr. Welder did some research on to look at, you know, the disparities in healthcare and treatment and diagnoses in, in so many other areas. And what I was able to find, and I'll share with share this with you, is that, for example, and this information is from the Henry J. Uh, Kaiser Family Foundation. It's a report on women of color and disparities in health care. And what they noticed out of, there was a, they, they, this is all by percentage, the percentage of women having no personal doctor or health care provider by race and ethnicity. 
Dr. Huggins and Wells. This is what I found interesting. Zero expat. Let me go to the black women first. Seventeen percent of black women didn't have a personal doctor um, or healthcare provider. Thirty-two were Hispanic, and they were the largest number. Nineteen percent were Asian, and then of course we had twenty-four percent were American Indian and Alaska Native. But the numbers were so um, the percentage to me was high. With white women, though, it was 17%. I'm sorry, 13%. So it seemed like black women, out of all women of color, black women were the lowest. We were the lowest on the percentage scale where more of us had, you know, doctors or private health care providers. But the, disp- the issues came in with Hispanic, Asian, and American Indian women. Is that alarming to you or no? Um. I would say it's it's alarming knowing that you know the U.S. the healthcare the caliber of the healthcare system we have, but as a um, as a woman of color and working like with some of the WIC programs and different programs in the area, I would say it's not alarming because like even I know like just some of the Hispanics in the area, uh, one of the things that we uh, identify with a barrier is that they don't trust people that are uh, non-Hispanics. And, you know, it, there are a variety of reasons for that. You know, some are uh, legal, illegally here. So, you know, they want, don't want people, you know, coming into their space, um, asking questions and things of that nature. So a lot of them have even denied WIC. So, um, you know, so having said that, they probably have, um, they probably are eligible for assistance and things of that nature to get the hair care they need. But just out of fear, they don't come forward. So we know that if you don't have... Um, any kind of coverage, then you're probably not going to uh, actually go to the uh, to the doctor or whatever. So by the time that they come into the doctors, then they're probably at a point where, you know, they do have high blood pressure. They do have other issues. So I'll say, you know, it's alarming, but with, just with working with um, uh, this particular group here, I can see why that number would be high, you know, with just the things that I, you know, can relate to. Wow, that's it. That's it. Let me ask you this. Why do you think we're seeing so much disparity in health care um, for women of color in the millennium? I mean, we're, here we are in the millennium, and we're still seeing these major issues. Why do you think we're seeing them? Um, one, I'll take a stab and say that um, one is the cost. Yeah. And even when um, sometimes when insurance is available at jobs, Individuals are trying to make ends meet, and if they could take a chance and not be insured or underinsured, I think, and, and along with um, paired with the the lack of trust sometimes within the medical field, it's like you know if I'm, if something's wrong, then I'll just have to figure it out. But I think it's the cost and uh, just having the access to knowledge. Yes. Yeah. I would have to agree with um, Dr. Huggins, you know, um, even with um, the Affordable Care Act and things of that nature, you know that we have um, more uh, Americans who are uh, insured now, but as she said, a lot of a lot of them are underinsured, meaning that they have high deductibles and high copay. So people have to choose a lot of times, like, am I going to, you know, um, 
go to the doctor and I have a $500, you know, um, deductible or, you know, this $50 copay today. So I think, you know, as we have to look at the social determinants of health, those things that uh, other factors, even if you have coverage, some people may not have access to get to uh, the transportation to get to the doctor's office. So we have to look at those other things. And as you kind of stated earlier, the inner city hospitals, we're seeing a lot of those, uh, sadly, a lot of those hospitals closed because we know that most of our inner city hospitals, they sorry populations with who are um, provided coverage through our safety nets. And our safety nets would be like TRICARE, Medicare, and Medicaid. So they're not getting 100% reimbursed. So what these hospitals are doing, they're closing down and they're going to the suburbs. So there they know they can get more people who have private insurance and they're going to get more reimbursement. Sadly to say, but that's what I have noted in, with, uh, after doing some research, a lot of the hospitals are going to that just so they can get more money. And we know that shouldn't be the case, but we know that healthcare has turned into a business Absolutely. just like you know any other business now. So it's all about the money. You know what, you're right, and I can tell you I went from living in the suburbs to relocating to living in an inner city, and I can tell you there's a significant difference in the quality of care um, yeah. from what I've noticed is doctors, the staff in doctor's offices being nasty, rude, um, condescending, yeah. um, doctors running in the office and they're in there with you like one, two, three, four, five, you count to ten and they're ready to pop out of the room again, and I'm like, well, yeah. where are you? You need to sit it down and listen to me. And yeah. I demand that they do that. But in the inner city, what I've seen is that the poor and the low quality of care, even with getting a mammogram, um, I just went through pure hell trying to get a mammogram once in the inner city. Um, I noticed how it seems like it, it's like their um, they're mills. You know, the doctor runs in. The, the offices are super crowded. Yeah runs in, they're in there with you long enough for me to say, oh, you know, my allergies are acting up really bad, and they're like, oh, you hear your voice is bad again, Donna. Okay, here's an injection, here's some pills, bye. And I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. Can we yes. at least have a, a conversation so I can tell you how I'm really feeling and my concerns and, you know, how the allergies are getting worse every day? But and in, in, in inner city, yes, we. I've seen this, I've witnessed it, I've experienced it. And I can tell you one thing, though, when we were in um, Maryland and we were able to go to the military base and receive care, it was unbelievable the, the quality of care that we received when we were going to the military base as opposed to what here, when I'm here I'm in the city, there's no bases, military bases here. Okay. I can tell you, ladies, the difference in the doctors, the treatment, the care, everything is is unbelievably different. It's just you see the lower standards and uh, low quality of care in the inner city. So I'm saying to myself, I'm a very intelligent person, and I challenge, I will challenge a doctor to, you know, you will listen to, you will hear my voice and my concerns. And if you don't have bedside manner, I'll teach you what it is, but this is my body. And I need yeah. you to be attentive to my needs and my concerns. And if you can't be, then this appointment is over with. But imagine if there are, there are people, and I can tell you I've seen people in the doctor's offices waiting who just wouldn't even think on that level, wouldn't even think to say that or question the doctor or demand that they listen to their concerns. So I'm saying to myself, there is an issue in inner cities. There is an issue in the quality of care, especially with women of color. 
Yeah. Nobody seems to be giving a rat's ta-ta about it. So you're right. No, I. That just it's just it's just alarming, and it's concerning. And I always say to people, sometimes you know. And let me give you another example. Look at what they're everyone's talking about: do Medicare for all. Do you think that would even work? Would that make a difference? If <laughs> what was your question? Do you think if them they're talking about Medicare for all for health insurance? Do you think okay. that would change? Would that change the quality of care that women of color are receiving, especially in inner cities? I don't think so because if you, um, as you know, as the statistics shows, even when we have the same coverage, the quality of care, you know, is uh, not equal. And even uh, one of the reports that I, uh, the unequal report, the unequal treatment report. They even noted that, and as a result of that, you know, the Institute of Medicine have the six dimensions of uh, the six aims of care, and one of the things that they added once they um, noted that, you know, care was unequal, they added equity to that list. So the, the six aims of safety, effectiveness, patient-centered, timely, timely, efficient, and equitable was the last one that they that they added because they noted that a lot of people, you know, were not, you know, being treated the same within the healthcare system. Uh, we know that uh, statistics shows from um, the two error is human was another report done by the um, Institute of Medicine in 1999, and that report showed that there were 44,000 to 98,000 preventable deaths, uh, medical errors. So these are errors that could have been prevented. So just think about, I was wondering before this talk, like I wondered how many of those were of women of color. If we knew like from that report that it was 44,000 to 98,000, preventable um, medical um, errors that occurred. I just wonder how many, like what was that percentage? And that report doesn't talk about that. But the next report that gives the, you know, the crossing of the quality child in 2001, it goes further. And basically what you said, like patients should take responsibility too and also hold doctors accountable, ask questions, you know, read, find out information so that, you know, you're not just relying on, you know, the, um, the, the advice of uh, what you call the expert. Because we know that there's a lot of things out there that we can use ourselves. Now we know we can't self-diagnose from WebMD in those places, but we can research and we can come prepared when we go to our doctor's office and ask questions and ask for clarification and ask them to slow down. And if they don't, you know what? Seek help, seek assistance from somewhere else if you are able to do that. But a lot of times, as we said, some of those social determinants of health, like transportation and things of that nature, may hinder our people, our women of color. From you know, like like you said, having that voice. Some don't have that voice because they don't have some of these resources they need to be able to, you know, to express themselves. So I think like platforms like this are wonderful because we become the voice for the voiceless. We go out and we advocate for them and let people know that it's not okay that uh, health disparities are, are, you know, that we have health disparities and that they're not getting better. They're continuing to just be something that people um, report on and it's, it's written in books. But nothing is happening, and it's not okay. Yeah, I do too. I agree 100%. Excellent point. Um, Doc Tuckins, were you getting ready to say something? Yeah, I was going to add when you asked the question if it's a universal um, system in place with that uh, minimizes disparities, and it made me think just in that moment, well, we're all so-called free and then um, education, our kids are mandated to go to school or if they're being homeschooled for whatever personal reason. But just because 
it's everyone has access to education, it doesn't mean that everyone's being educated. So I think if we uh, if we look at a universal system, yes, it will increase the quantity of individuals cover, but I don't think that that will improve the quality that individuals receive. Good point. Yeah, I agree. I do. Excellent point. I do agree with you 100%. Let me ask you this. Do you think when we look at inner cities and we see the, the real, the, you know, the big disparities there in the quality of health care, especially for the women of color, you know, and Maybe if I'm not wording this right, just tell me. Is that on purpose or is it unintentional? I mean, why is it that in the inner cities? I mean, we, well, you might have just answered this question for me when you said education may be a key in reading and and using your voice. But and maybe I'm way out there and left fearful. If I am, clobber me. Do you think it's intentional or it's on purpose that they're getting this low quality care? I. I think it's one sometimes with um just uh individual women of color we're fearful and when we're unable to um identify our power or that we have rights then folks can really treat us I mean just anyway they they we we accept negligence because we're unaware that it's our right to say something. I, I, I'll give you an example. I went to a, uh, a cardiologist a few years ago, and um, I requested a female, but when I got there, because the, the female doctor was on the um, website when I called, but when I got there, I was served by a male cardiologist. And, you know, that was cool. I, I wanted to, you know, be assessed a proper assessment, and um, he was probably about 15, 20 minutes late coming into the room, and there was no greeting. There was, you know, besides the bedside manners, once he started speaking to me and doing the, um, reviewing the, the assessment, I think his second or third question to me was, is everybody in your family overweight? Are you kidding me? I am dead serious. So when he said that, I said, well, sir, it depends on how you define overweight. But he didn't even care about how I responded. His thing was, okay, you're coming to the uh, cardiologist. We're talking about your heart. Okay, we're we're definitely not going to rule out weight. Weight is an issue. Okay, are we going to deal with this? So, again, I I feel pretty... Um, you know, I understand what's going on. I, you know, professional woman, and I still, I did not back down. I still asked questions. Well, okay, sir. Well, this is what's going on. Do you want to hear about my symptoms? For somebody who uh, has little trust in the medical field, and they're uh, faced with that type of disrespect, that that's it. That that's it. And I could have went home and had a heart attack because I would be afraid to go back to the hospital because I'm being judged, because the the physician said that I'm overweight according to his eyes. So I think issues as, as such could, I, I, you know, just with sensitivities with, with medical professionals, I think that is a, that's a big deal. It could be a determinant in how, we, how our individuals are served. And I'd like to add to that, as, um, what she was saying. So, so you answer your question, um, kind of just back, um, going off of what she said, you know, just the people who are working in inner cities. Like, uh, you know, I don't know uh, if it's they're overworked, mm-hmm. underpaid, you know, um, short staff. Like a lot of times that can be 
Um, the result of you know the uh, the service that uh, the people women of color are receiving. So a lot of times you know they may not. I don't. I I would hope in the healthcare is not intentional. So I was. I would say maybe it's the people who are employed there. They don't have the sensitivity. They don't have the the care that they should have. Which I guess in terms of it would be intentional if you don't have those things in healthcare because you know that those are vital you know components and characteristics of a healthcare worker. So I said maybe the wrong people are employed there. Sometimes people need to do a reassessment and see if this is something that they really want to do. And I guess that's when women of color or men of color should enter the healthcare field and we become our own doctors for our population because you know we see these gaps and we see these disparities and they're not getting any better. Um, we put our health in our own hands. Uh, I would hope it's not intentional, but, you know, the the statistics are very disturbing. Right. No, they are, and I, and I found alarming even with the, um, you know, the Institute of, of Medicine, their report, one report they wrote, and let me, let me go back and make sure I have my note correctly, and they noted in there, let's see, the 2002 report, they noted that um, there's evidence in healthcare providers, their biases, prejudices, and uncertainty when treating minorities contribute to healthcare, can contribute to healthcare disparities. And they went on to state how the summary focused on how providers' attitudes and beliefs, even those that aren't, you know, consciously aware, may influence the quality of patient care and what patients can do about it. And I do believe that is true, and I, the, both of you have made excellent points um, noting on these issues, but my concern is, you know, there's standards of care that the doctors should, you know, definitely provide. When, as a woman of color, when if a woman of color walks into a doctor's office and she feels how the doctor could be maybe condescending or downplaying her issues mm-hmm. or concerns. At that point in time, I think they should just get up and say, "Listen, this isn't working for me. This appointment is over with. And I'm going and and leave the office. Just you know, next it's over with, and find another doctor who you can have faith in and feel comfortable with. Why don't we yeah. do that? I don't think we we're aware that we can. Okay, good. And that I wanted to point out when we talk about um, like cultural mandates uh, for federal and state governments, well, you would be happy that in 2005, uh, New Jersey was the first state to pass a law to require physicians to take cultural competency training as a part of their licensure. So, hey, I like <laughs> Hmm? I like that. Good. Keep continuing. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> No, it was just the first state. So what what happened was um, approximately like 30,000 physicians who were already licensed had to complete the cultural competency competency training to renew their licensure every two years. And that's necessary because being medically trained does not equate to being culturally humble or culturally um, equipped to deal with differences. So I think it goes hand in hand. I agree. I agree. You're right. I just think it's sometimes, you know, and and I can tell you this, I have concerns. Like um, I tried to see another back doctor here in Jersey, in Bayonne, New Jersey, and when I went to his office, you know, you, sometimes you can just feel this is 
remember what he said or he did, but something just ticked me off. And I blew him away, and I told him the appointment was over with. And he was like, no, 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 we sit down. I said, oh, we cannot sit down, and we cannot have a conversation because I don't like your approach. And I need to feel comfortable with the doctor. You're walking in down, instantly ready to downplay my the severity of my pain and the, my condition, and I have degenerative disc disease. And he was just, like, trying to downplay. I'm like, sir, do you realize the hell that I'm living in with this pain? And he was so rude and so condescending. You know, I ended, before the appointment started, I ended it with him. I told him to give me my CD back. And he wanted to push back and say, no, 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 let's start over, let's start over. And I said, no, I know what it was, ladies. He walked in the room and didn't say, hello, I'm Dr. So-and-so. He just walked in the room. And I said, hello, when he walked in the room. I said, hello, how are you? He looked at me, never said a word. Picked up the file, looked at it, sat there and went through everything. And then when he decided to start speaking, that's when I lit into him. Wow. Because I... I wanted him to know, and then my husband said to me on the way back, he said, that's, he said, so much racism, and he said, you know, you were treated that way because you're a black woman, and I said, no, I'd rather think he's just ignorant and rude, and doesn't know any better, but you know what, ladies, the reality of it was my husband was like, this guy was, a, it was a, you could just see the race, you could just feel it, and I said to him, you know, this is a shame, because here we are in the inner city, I'm a black woman, I want, you know, and I'm like this, you will give me quality care. And we realize in the end we have to go far out, way out of the city in order to get decent quality medical care. And it shouldn't be that way because my argument is what about the people here who aren't able to, like their voices, they don't have the voice, they're afraid to speak up or they just don't know how. What about those women who are going into doctor's offices who aren't getting quality care and they're too afraid or too uneducated to realize that they're not getting the care? So, for example, if you prescribe pills for me, I'm going to read up and see what they are. What are the side effects? You know, why are you prescribing this to me? And if I get a prescription, I will say to the doctor, well, what is this for and what is it going to do? Right. Yeah. Do you know right. Do you know of any side effects? And I can tell you this years ago when I was in uh, Maryland, I had a doctor who was so annoyed that I would ask him questions that he preferred that I would see his nurse practitioner when I would come in for visits. And my thing was, but you're the doctor, and I'm supposed to ask you these questions if I can you know, sit down and you, you tell me, okay, well, you know, your allergies are really bad, A, B, C, or D. If I can't have a conversation with you and ask you questions about my concerns and, you know, the diagnosis, the prognosis, uh, the prescriptions, side effects that you know of as a doctor, then there is something severely wrong. Yeah, if, I agree. You know, if you get annoyed and upset. Now, my mom, my late mother was a lot like me. She would rip into doctors and then and heart being like, no, you need to explain A, B, C, or D to me. What is going on? But then I look at her sister, who was completely, okay, if he said, here, take these nine pills, take mm -hmm. two of these a day and one of these every other day, she was like, okay, and she would take the pills and go home. Right. Yeah. You know, and I think, I think like you both noted, we, it, it all backs up to educating ourselves and learning and knowing. I, I think you're right, platforms like this, I think community events, um, Focusing on health here can help make a difference, especially for women of color, because
is it's it's just an issue. Yes. Okay. Let, um, okay. Let me move on. Let me see my next question to you. Let me focus in on. By the way, what the hell was such a great uh, essay? I loved it. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and and as I you know I noted early and I repeat this again how you both educated me especially to. Um, the issues of women of color went through with the slave with the experiences and them experimenting on them. Let's see. My next area I want to focus on is race and color. And I'm going to skip over this one. Well, I'll read it. According to Hostetter and Klein in 2018, they wrote an article. Um, it was titled, In Focus, Reducing Racial Disparities in Healthcare by Confronting Racism. And I'm saying this in quotes, compared with white members of racial and ethnic minorities, and we've probably uh, discussed some of these issues anyway prior to now, are likely to to receive preventative, or less likely rather to receive preventative health services and often receive lower quality care. They also have worse health outcomes for certain conditions. To combat these disparities, advocates say that healthcare professionals must explicitly acknowledge that race and racism factor into healthcare. And I believe that. Do you agree with Hostetter and Klein? Yes. Yes, I definitely agree. Do you think that? Uh, do you think that the would it be fair to say that perhaps maybe when race and race is factored into this <coughs> and racism issues, would it be fair to say that perhaps maybe it's unconscious or is it unintentional or is it intentional or unconscious? Or it could be a combination of both. I think it's, I, I would say it's a, it could be a combination of both. I really think that, that it could be a combination of both. Both, okay. I was wondering about that. What about when it comes to institutional racism? Do you think that's a big issue in the healthcare industry? Um, yes, because I think when we, um, again, when we um, focus on the thought of, you know, James Marion Sims, it's just the, the, the legacy that we're, we're built to um, – we have a high tolerance of pain. And so, or I don't know if it was believed that we, you know, slavery just to this point, it's like even if we were hurting, who who cared? You know, so it's like did, did we, were we, were we able to communicate our hurt? Like I know in the African-American community, it's growing up it was very rare. I never ever heard my mom said I'm stressed or I'm anxious or I'm uh-huh. this or I'm that. And so I remember one time I was reading something on Oprah's website and it's uh we were taught that exhaustion is a badge of honor and so even with pain because I like after becoming an adult it's like I can actually say I'm tired, I'm overwhelmed, uh-huh. I'm, you know, I have a lot on my plate without feeling like I'm not the pillar of my community. So I think it's it's the, the legacy and generational hurt and, like, just the, the language that we're supposed to take it all in. And I, I really think it all deals with pain. And when I think pain and how we're um, 
just have a high tolerance is physical pain, mental pain. It's like we're going to take it to the altar. We're going to pray on it. And we're going to this. So I I think it all kind of, you know, it's just interwoven. I agree. I agree 100% because you you made a great I'm sorry, Dr. Wells. No, I just saw her great point, you know, um, even with mental illness and things of that nature. As she said, you know, uh, a lot of times it's swept on the rug, and like she said, we're going to pray for them, you know. And you can't pray, you know, a mental illness out of an individual, but um, those are just cultural, you know, things that uh, we, we we have to face and that we just know that in our communities we need more education uh, on those particular topics. And you want to know and you both okay. good points. Great, Dr. Huggins. Oh, I was I was going to say, and it's, it's, I think it's imperative, like, when we do have platforms, you know, as, as we have tonight, to um, help individuals. It, it's okay to say, look, I'm tired, or no, I can't do that, or I, I you know, I, I don't feel well, or, but, but, you know, it's like we miss a day from work, and then whatever we have built from a day or two, it, now it's sabotage. It's like, you know, we can't. Uh, pay all of our bills, so like everything is just riding on everything, and it's it's a systemic failure. It is. You're right. You're so right. And you know, you make a valid point because I never ever remember growing up. I never remember hearing my mom say, "I'm so tired," or "I'm exhausted," or "I need a break." You were so. I never ever heard my mom say that. She never heard it. Never heard. My and my mom had three jobs. Three jobs, and to this day. She, you know, has two jobs. And I'm like, are you ever tired? Well, I just take my rest and I just, and, you know, even now I'm like, look, times have changed. Like, you can say you're tired or you need a break or, Mm -hmm. you know, but, like, now I can say that because I've been fortunate to be in a situation where, okay, if you miss a day from work and you need assistance or we we can make a way, you know, so it's like that, that's my my uh my fuel to you know it's like if if just to if I'm gonna make the suggestion especially to my mom have the the resources that she can stand on it's like look I'm tired I don't feel good I have a headache I have a toothache and I'm not going to work today because where I'm from then that's just you're not feeling well but you'll be okay and that's that's unacceptable you you have to own your pain and be able to communicate it. That's right. I remember I said to, I know I was saying this to the other day, and I said, my gosh, I'm exhausted. I'm drained. And and I said, my God, and I was just, you know, talking to them, you know, just venting. And I said, I have so much on my plate. I'm just really tired. And then today I made a comment. I said, I just don't feel well. I'm not feeling well. And I need a time out because I'm, you know, my I have really severe allergies, and they're horrible. And the weather in Jersey is, is killing me so I have to get out of here and there are days like my voice will just go terrible I'm you know beat red my face is red I'm puffy my eyes are bad and I just said I'm exhausted and I'm drained and I don't feel well and someone stopped and looked at me like how dare you how dare you say that you don't feel well how dare you say that you're exhausted and drained and I became so annoyed at the fact that I was given this look like how dare you even think you have a right to, to express that. You're supposed right. to suck up and, and keep going, no matter how bad you feel, no matter yep. how worn out, exhausted you are. And I have an issue with that because I'm like, look, I'm human. And I, I, yes. 
you know, as a woman, you're supposed to be strong. You're a professional woman. You, you know, our plates get full, but sometimes it's, you know, you're doing so much. And yes. you you don't need, when I, when, in other words, if I come to you and I say to you, you know, I'm just so tired. I'm just so one. I just need one day to just rest and relax and do absolutely nothing to shut down that doggone laptop. Don't look at it. Don't breathe near it. Refuse to look at, answer any email on the cell phone. And for one day, do nothing. And I find out that people around me look at me like, how dare you? Right. And I remember I said this to my husband last week. I said, I'm not superwoman. Mm-hmm. And he made a statement. Right. And he said, but the problem is you have always been superwoman. I said, well, I'm not superwoman any longer. Sometimes, right, yeah. you know, you need, when you realize that it is okay to tell people that you're tired, you're worn, you're not feeling well, and like you notice, if I miss a day today, then you guys will have to do without me because if you want me to keep going at the rate I am and it's wearing me down and wearing me down to the point that I can't go anymore, what would you yeah. prefer for Take that day and rest, or and sometimes I wonder if we're expected to just keep going and going. Like you said, it comes from slavery. We're supposed to be able to withstand and endure and keep going, and not complain or gripe, or just even voice how we feel. So right, I, 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 I agree. Go ahead. I agree. I I teach a worksite wellness class, and we talk about this concept a lot. It's actually termed presentism meaning that you're present, but you're really not productive. So, you know, um, in Worksite Wellness, we, we talk about that, and we're like, so is it better for a person to come to work, you know, when they're sick or now? And, you know, the research shows that, you know, it's better uh, to have Worksite Wellness programs and things like that on the job so that, you know, people don't get sick or that they do uh, have the prevention tools and things of that nature. Because as you said, you just made a great point. If you're not your best, then you're not really, you know, going to give your all. So uh, we all, as you stated, we all just need to acknowledge that everybody is human and we we just have to have a a point in our life where we say no or are they just for us. Right. And I encourage that to anybody, you know, have some me time, even if it's just your shower time, you know, um, to just meditate, whatever um, it is that helps to, like, make you, um, you know, release the stresses of the day is necessary, especially for it, your professional women. I agree. I found that out. And I found it out the hard way because, you know, if I told you before, I'm the, I'll go 24-7 and then it just hits you. You're exhausted. You're tired. You need a break. And I think what's happened is that for especially black women, we are expected to keep going. And yeah, right. and it seems like I've noticed people get annoyed, you know, in the work environments, especially if you say, No, I'm just exhausted, I'm tired, I'm not feeling well, I need a time a time I need a break. And then they this is what they do. They'll say, Oh, are you sick? Do you need to go to the doctor? <laughs> right, <laughs> right. <laughs> no, and it's, I really, and I know you. You know you can never say this, but I'm inside my mind, I'm saying, "No, you idiot." I'm just telling you. I need to <laughs> I'm mentally drained, exhausted. It's not. I need to go get a prescription. I'm just telling you. I need a timeout. I need a break. And it's right. amazing that, as a black woman, especially. And I can tell you, I've seen this so many times. I've been in situations and environments where a white woman can say, oh, I'm so stressed, I'm exhausted, I need a break. I'm going to take some time out. Um, they just keep going. 
you know, they expect you, they can do it, but when the woman of color, the black woman says two weeks or three weeks later the same thing, they're looking at you like, what, you know, what, what is wrong with you? So yeah. I, let me move on so we don't run out of time. Um, let's okay. Let's move to... Let's see, we've talked about, we've practically covered so many good things. Let's see. Okay, yes, this is my biggest one. Why are women of color, specifically black women's health care concerns, sometimes viewed as being exaggerated? Why aren't we believed? Hmm. I guess it goes back to what Veronica said about her mom never saying anything. They're used to us being silent for so long and operating in silos and not expressing ourselves that when we do, it's like, it's a disbelief. Like, oh, she's hurting. Mm -hmm. They have pain. It's like it's a disbelief that we actually have pain. And, yes, we do have pain. We're humans. But I think the fact that we've been so silent uh, silent for so long and um, just kind of endured, it's, it's a disbelief, I think. Right. And then I, I don't do think too. we... I don't think we have uh, stopping points because I think pain from a woman of color, I think it's associated with physical versus mental. Because sometimes the mental pain could yeah. have more of a, uh impact than the physical pain, but it's like I we agree. ignore the mental to the point that it becomes physical. And then at that point, we're unable to, to vocalize what's going on because we're near death. Exactly. You're right. We're going to have to wrap up listeners because we're running out of time. But um, Dr. Huggins as well, I would love for you two to come back again and we can continue this conversation because this is so educating and enlightening and so informative and so very needed. Yeah, I agree. Um, I want to thank you both um, for coming on as guests. And I'm going to kidnap the two of you along with Dr. Sun, and we're going to go somewhere. <laughs> we're, going to, we're going to start some platform. Or, no, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to kidnap you guys and, and have you come work with me once I get in GWCC huge. Right, put you guys on payroll and have all of us there together. Do you know what a knockout awesome bunch we would be? Oh, man. Bring it on. <laughs> I'll be the bad one. You guys will have to keep in line every day. Be like, Donna, don't. But I, want to, <laughs> I just want to I thank you both very much for coming on. Um, this has been a wonderful conversation. And before we even close, um, I would like to give the both of you an opportunity. Are there any projects or events that are upcoming, a website that you would like listeners to know about, to learn more about you and your work? Well, you can just go to um, the University of Southern Indiana and just type in our names. My name is Dr. Phoenicia Wales, and it's spelled with a P, so it's quite unique. <laughs> it's spelled like phone. It's P-H-O-N-E-S-H-I-A, and last name Wales. And if you just Google that, it'll take you directly to my web page. And I'm always working on just this various um, projects with colleagues. Uh, same here um, with the University of Southern Indiana, and most of my projects align with um, self-efficacy among uh, vulnerable populations. So for the most part, like we, uh, if you, everything that we're doing, you could find it on the website. And I, I did want to end with um, Dr. Bernice Brown. She's a, a PhD and a clinician, and she talks about we're socialized to please perform and perfect. 
and that's just our state of being. But when we realize that we don't have to please, we don't have to be perfect, and we don't have to do things when when it's against our will, then I think it takes the pressure off of us sometimes. It does. That's wonderful. That's a beautiful way to end it. I love that. Excellent. But, ladies, thank you both so much. Well, doctors, rather, thank you very much for being guests. Um, this has been a wonderful, informative show, good information, enlightenment, and I'm quite sure that our guests have learned a great deal uh, tonight that we probably weren't even aware of. So thank you both for your time, and you both must come back, and we're going to continue this and go deeper and deeper into it. Okay. But thank thank you. you. Have a wonderful evening. Same for you. you. Okay. Good night. Okay, listeners, that was wraps up. You know, first of all, thank you, Dr. Huggins and Wells. Informative, educational um, discussion. They made some valid, really good points. And listeners, I hope that you listen. You remember them. If not, feel free to go back and listen to the archives. And as noted, this wraps up our series on our voices, our stories. This series has been uh, ended, and you know, in alignment with the publication of our anthology, our voices, our stories. The link to purchase the anthology will be up on the website. And I only thing I'm going to say to you right now, listeners, is by April 1st, because I keep saying each show, it'll be up this night or that night. We're waiting for everything to get set to go through with the setup, and that's what's holding up. So once I get the word back that it is finalized, um, I will will be on the National Girls and Women of Colors website. And that is ngwcc.org. We will share it on our Facebook account, Twitter, and other social media platforms when the book is ready to be purchased. We do know that they will be in they will be arriving in April and they will be shipped out in April. We'll put the link up so that you may go on and remember this is a fundraiser for the National Girls and Women of Color Council. I would like to thank all of you for supporting the National Girls and Women of Color Council, for supporting us with the anthology. We do hope that you buy plenty of copies of the anthology to help us. Not only that, by reading this, the poems, the essays, the short stories, the bios contained within the anthology, we believe it will give you greater insight as to the very issues um, that girls and women of color experience, whether we're celebrating something, advance, helping advance each other, embracing or empowering each other. Um, as Dr. Wells and Dr. Huggins noted, all of my other guests throughout the week, that they can be, um, be real, they can really be trying at times some of the issues that girls and women of color deal with. We do hope that this series was enlightening, it was informative, um, that you've learned more about the issues that we've dealt with. And so to a quick recap, we our first episode focused in advancing girls and women of color. I, I um, hosted that show solo. Our second episode focused in on celebrating girls and women of color. Uh, writers and our guests and were Miss Crystal Mayo, Miss Kim Marie Walker, and Miss Loretta Moore. Our third episode focused in on embracing girls and women of color. That title of that particular episode, episode three, was on being our sister's keeper. And our guests for that show were doctors Alexandria Smith and Rebecca George and Miss Bethany Loper. Our fourth episode was titled Power Within. And our guests for that particular episode.
episode where Miss Alicia Thompson and Dr. Megna Bahat and our final fifth episode was tonight was titled What's the Health? Women of Color and Healthcare Disparities in the Millennium. Our guests were Dr. Monica Huggins and Dr. Phoenicia Wells. So we've had a enlightening series. Thank you for tuning in. The archives of these series will, of this mini series will be available on the National Girls and Women of Color uh, website. There'll be links here to listen to each episode. In addition, as noted earlier, you may also access the archives through our Podbeam account for Complexity Talk Radio Incorporated. We will share the links on Facebook and other social media platforms. In the meantime, when we put the link out there that the book is ready, the anthology is ready to be published, please support us, share the link. It is our hope that we can encourage um, professors and colleges and universities, um, schools around the country and even internationally to use this anthology in their literature classes, in their programs, in discussions. So we need your support to continue to grow the National Girls and Women of Color Council. We thank you all for tuning in. Much love to everybody. Have a wonderful rest of the week, you guys. And join us. Visibility will be back in April as a segment on Complexity Talk Radio. And I believe it's going to be the second Wednesday of every month. We will host a, a visibility. Visibility will be a program on Complexity Talk Radio's Complexity Live that will be hosted where we'll discuss and talk about the issues affecting girls and women of color. And then we'll go back to Complexity the rest of the month and we'll talk about issues in general, whether it's motivation, people of color issues, education, race, color, uh, you name it, we'll be back on the air. So it's been a pleasure as always. Thank you for tuning in. And remember, as I always say to you, no matter what you do, where you go, or whatever you do, be unapologetically, authentically you. And always remember to define yourself for yourself and keep rising to the top. This is Dr. Colbert signing off for Visibility. Good night, everyone. Thank you for joining us for Visibility with your host, Dr. Donna Maria Colbert. You may contact us at 866-829-0163. We're looking forward to you tuning in next Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Until next week, remember to define yourself for yourself. Dare to be different and dream in color. This is Dr. Culbert signing off for Visibility. Good night.